Fast Forward Productions. The women are speaking. Part of our issue as a society is that we don't live in a society where we really have to make hard decisions or do things that we don't want to do. You know, I think about life around the turn of the 20th century or like in the 1800s. There were things that you had to do because they were required for survival. Like in the middle of the summer, chopping wood for the fireplace in the wintertime. I bet you plenty of people didn't want to go do that, but they know what happens if they don't, and it's not good. Hey everyone, Meredith here, and this is the Afternoon Snack Podcast. On today's episode, we are going to talk a bit on the topic of emotional resilience, what it means, how it shows up in life, can you develop it? Spoiler alert, you can, and our best tips for doing that and implementing tools in your everyday life. So this is a great podcast that kind of wanders a bit, but we have some personal stories that we share, share a little bit of science, a little bit of neuroscience, a little bit of behavioral science. It's a really great one. And yeah, we hope you enjoy it. We'll get right to it. I don't know what's going on. I don't know if it's winter. I don't know if it's post-holiday. But no matter how much I sleep, whether it's eight hours or nine hours, I try to get always at least eight. Getting out of bed is incredibly difficult. Harder than it's been in my entire life. I'm just going to throw this out there. Are you just tired? I mean, maybe. Mel Robbins says you should actually roll out of bed. That's her solution to... If you're struggling to get out of bed... Don't rip the covers off and put your feet on the floor. You literally like roll out of bed onto the floor. That's what she says you should do. I feel like that's dangerous. Why? What are you keeping on the floor? Well, I don't think you want to be dropping horizontally like three feet. Well, I don't. It's not like roll without any control whatsoever. (laughs) It's like you kind of roll and slide. Here's what I would do. This is how difficult it is for me to get out of bed right now. I would probably lie on the ground and go back to sleep. Oh, that's where you're at. That's where I'm at. When I was a kid and like my kid, I mean, when I was a teenager, I would have swim practice like very early in the morning. I don't even know how I did that, but that's just what swimmers do. And I was so obsessed with sleep and I was so tired because I think teenagers just are tired that I would sleep in my swimsuit. I would sleep in my downhill suit, my ski racing downhill suit, but only the bottom part. For the same reason? To save time in the morning, like to not have to put it on in the morning. Okay. But was that because you were really excited to ski or because you were like sleepy? Probably so that I could sleep in a little bit more, but I never really struggled with getting up early as a kid. I don't think Mm. I don't really remember that being an issue. I was obsessed with skiing and I always like my mom, I'm pretty sure just like really hated me for this because (laughs) I would always want to be the first one at the hill. Yeah. First one in the lodge, first one on the chairlift. I would put my boots on in the car. It's funny because I'm like, I'm still excited when I go to bed. I'm still looking forward to the next day. Okay. Like I I like my life. I like I'm excited to do my workouts. I'm excited to get after work. Like I have a full to do list of things that I want to do. It's not like I'm dreading doing things. Yeah. Not like I'm depressed or anxious about the day. And that's why I'm in bed. Just like I enjoy being in bed so much that I can't seem to get out of bed. And it's not like it's super cold. It's just like, it's so cozy. Yeah. And I'm sleeping eight or nine hours. 
It doesn't make sense to me. But once I'm up, I'm fine. Like yesterday, I had to take a 10 minute power nap. But other than that, I've been pretty like energetic throughout the day. I think it's just seasonal. I think that it's dark. It's like 6 a.m. It's still super, super dark. I think it doesn't get light till eight, like 830. I think it's especially dark where we are because we're in a valley. Fernie's in a valley and we're like underneath a mountain. Yeah. So it takes a while for the sun to come up. And then it also feels like it sets earlier on us than other people. Maybe. I heard someone say that about Alpine trails. They were like, oh, it's lovely, but it's like so dark in the winter. And I was like, ah, you're kind of right. I don't know. I think it's fine. I think humans are supposed to rest more and sleep more in the wintertime. And we just like aren't set up to do that from a societal standpoint. I don't know. Maybe my workouts are harder. I don't know what it is, but it's hard. Every day I go to bed, I'm like, oh, gosh, I'm not prepared for tomorrow morning. I know. And then one time I put my alarm clock on the other side of the bedroom so that I would have to get up. I haven't done it here. I did it in Calgary. Yep. And I turned off the alarm and went back to bed. Yeah, it's you really have to fight. And you know what sucks is like I consider myself a very disciplined person. Like I've always been able to get up in other aspects of my life. I can always rally to get in my workout. Yeah. or I can rally to do things that I don't necessarily want to do. But I am really struggling with this one. Yeah. And so much so that I actually looked up on my phone in bed this morning because I didn't want to get out of bed. Like how to make getting out of bed easier. And I've come to the conclusion that I am one of those people that I'm looking for a magic pill, yeah. a magic bullet, getting out of bed. When frankly, it's just get your ass out of bed. So I don't know. I'm still grappling with it because that doesn't help. You've given me sleep anxiety. That's your recent gift to me because of when I was kind of sick and coffee. And there were those couple of times that I kept you awake or like disrupted your sleep because I was like coughing so much. And for some reason around midnight, the last couple of weeks, I just get a cough. Like I get a tickle in my throat. I don't know if it's very dry. And then maybe it's like a cat hair. But then once I feel that happen, I'm just awake because I'm like, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to wake Alex up. And I don't know if you've ever tried to not cough when you have to cough, but it's awful. How does this have to do with helping me get up in the morning? It doesn't. I just wanted to share. just wanted to be heard. Yeah. It's like, I don't know. It's a problem. I hope it goes away because I'm otherwise a really good sleeper. But I I'm haven't struggling. given you sleep anxiety, Meredith. It's something that happened. I'm not to blame for asking you to be quiet in the nighttime when I'm trying to sleep. What do you do when you get back into bed? Like apparently I get into bed in the wrong way and wake you up. You admitted to me that you get in bed. You were like, oh, yeah, I am moving around a lot when I get into bed. I have to so I have to get into bed facing this way. And then I have to get my sleep sheep. And then I have to turn around completely. Yeah. I have to have my head down here where my feet usually are. And then I have to go back up and turn the no. other way around. Then I have to get on my feet and I have to do a front flip while grabbing the blankets. And then I land and I can fall back asleep. But only after that routine can I fall asleep. And I was like, okay, this makes a lot of sense. Because that's what it feels like is happening on your side of the bed when you get into the bed after a midnight pee. All I do is I get in bed facing you and then I roll all the way over. It doesn't feel as good if I get into bed like facing out. I don't know why. It just doesn't work for me. Okay. Well, we have another bedroom in the house, so feel free. Okay. I will do that. Anyways, I guess <laughs> I like you just wanted to air that out. I did. Because you, you wanted someone. Now you're waiting. You're going to be waiting for a DM. You're going to be like, I want someone to DM me and be like, I feel you. I have sleep anxiety because of my partner too. Because I coughed one time 
Yeah. I'm sure someone will come to your rescue. Okay. I look forward to that. It is just torturing me at nighttime. The thought of keeping Alex Parker awake. So sleepy. Anyways, we've had this concept in this podcast and associated social media posts on our mind for a while. And it's like, it's one of those things when you start thinking about a thing, you just start seeing it. Like when we were shopping for a truck, you just see the truck that you're shopping for all yeah, the time. It happens every time. But when you're like, oh, I really want to get this kind of dog, you just start seeing that dog yeah. all the time. It's, a, I'm sure, a, a cognitive bias that you're just sort of looking for. But anyways, it's this topic of emotional resilience. And I remember like it kicks around in my head a lot because someone asked on one of our like ask me anything on Instagrams one time if you could build emotional resilience. I don't know if we had like done a post on it or mentioned it or where that came from, but the question was there. And so I've just kind of been thinking about it ever since. And then saw a Mel Robbins post about it. It was on podcast recently that I listened to in more detail. So I was like, we should get on this. We should action this this idea and this concept. So the podcast today is on emotional resilience, what it is, what it's related to, can it be built, and how we think that you can go about adding it into your life. So how do we define emotional resilience? You want me to do it? Yeah, I thought you were going to. Okay. So emotional resilience is a dynamic process that allows a person to recover from negative conditions or situations. It's the ability to improve psychologically after exposure to a serious hassle or threat. The ability to maintain, achieve, and regain physical or emotional health after illness or loss. That's how we define emotion. That's actually more of a just a definition of resilience, but well, definitely you can be like physically resilient. Yeah, for sure. Which probably is somewhat unrelated, or maybe not. I don't know, but that's how you define it. And when Mel Robbins posted about it recently, she was kind of in line with how I think about it and how we think about it and that people who lack emotional resilience lack that ability to recover as well from negative situations, negative emotions. They don't do well with threats or hassle. They have trouble regaining physical and emotional health, mental health after like difficult situations. And she said, essentially, you know, a lot of people just the way that they make decisions, especially in stressful situations, is based on how they feel in that moment. And that's what I think more so than having knowledge, having ability, having understanding, having know-how on how to do things. What I think inhibits a lot of people from making the progress that they want to make and seeing success is that they lack emotional resilience. Yeah, I would agree with that. But I think the definition that you use for emotional resilience is like a certain take on it. Like it's like something bad has happened. How do you handle it? Can you get through it? How does it impact you? How does it affect you negatively? And how quickly are you able to get back to like normal life or like maintain productivity. Whereas like, where does emotional regulation fall into this? Like, I feel like on a smaller scale, that's emotional regulation. I feel like resilience is more like when something bad happens or when something is impactful, how do you respond? Yeah. 
And I think over time, like, I mean, we'll talk about this, that can be cultivated, but emotional regulation is more about what you need in like moment to moment when you have small decisions, when you're deciding between instant gratification and delayed gratification. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's some overlap between the two concepts because for some people, those small decisions or like small daily hassles feel really large and insurmountable. And that may be like the size and relative effect that those things have on a person probably to some extent is related to emotional resilience. Like is emotional resilience really that different than emotional regulation? I think of emotional regulation more as like a psychological tool when people dysregulate due to anxiety, due to mental health trouble, ADHD. I think about the emotional regulation that comes in there. I don't know that they always overlap, but they certainly sometimes overlap the two concepts. Yeah. I think emotional like resilience is more of a like demonstrated pattern of behavior. I think an emotionally resilient person can on occasion just be dysregulated emotionally. Yeah. I was like that. Yeah. I think the way I think about it, I was very emotionally resilient when my sister died. I was able to go back to school and not let it impact my life. It wasn't like I had to like, you know, cancel my life because I was in bed. And that's fine if you're somebody who has to. I just, the way that I see it, like emotional resilience defined is like, I am emotionally resilient enough to be able to like continue on Mm -hmm. with the plan, which is school, which is my ski season, whatever it may be with doing my homework. I'm able to focus despite this like traumatic event. Yeah. Whereas like emotional regulation, that in that time specifically was very difficult for me. Yeah. And maybe there's some interplay there, kind of like what you said, like, but how if you're not emotionally regulated, are you emotionally resilient? That's a good question. I'm kind of like, I'm bringing in some concepts here. Hopefully that's okay. Cause we talked before this podcast, but like it's becoming more clear, but also more complicated. (laughs) Self-efficacy is also part of the equation. It's like, do you feel like you can do it? Do you feel competent? Do you believe that you can overcome? Like that's a foundation of emotional resilience if you want to talk about that on like a larger scale and then emotional regulation on a small scale. Like if something small pops up that maybe creates some anxiety for you, like can you say to yourself, it's okay, I got this. Yeah. Like if I get an email from someone, maybe a disgruntled customer, part of me gets anxious and I'm like, oh geez, like, but I can handle this. I can problem solve. I've done this before. I know how to handle it. Like I will make this better. Yep. I know how to do this. Whereas like somebody who doesn't believe that they know how to do it or doesn't believe they can learn how to approach it and handle it and problem solve, the emotional resilience would be lower because then you're not able to think positive about something that's coming. You're just consumed by the anxiety of it being a problem. Yeah. So that's how I think about these things. Yeah. I mean, the self-efficacy is like, do you have that hope and that belief that you have some determination over outcomes in your life, even like through and beyond difficult situations. Like the best way to visualize self-efficacy or self-determination in the context of emotional resilience as like broad concepts is as a feedback loop. It's not one before the other. They are equal. And then they feed positively into one another. The more emotionally resilient a person is and the more they can rebound and see themselves through difficult moments, period of time, years even, 
the more they're going to feel like they have some determination and control over what's happening to them in their life generally. But it also works in the other direction. Someone who's not emotionally resilient probably feels more powerless, more anxiety, like they don't have control. They're just kind of like, you know, a cog in the system and that they don't have a lot of determination over the things that happen to them. So in like very simple terms, more of a victim mentality and less of a growth mindset, I guess. That's how I think about them. I wonder if someone were to hear that or look at you during that period of time, if they would say like, oh, she's deflecting or she's not grieving. Mm. Did you ever have anyone say that to you after you lost your sister? Like, did you ever feel like people thought that? Yeah. I mean, even like a therapist did say that, like just to paint the picture since I brought it up, but I'll keep it brief. I lost my sister in between my junior and senior year. So my third and fourth year of university. And it was in mid-August. So I actually had to go back to university in Alaska about a week and a half later after my sister passed away to start the year of school. It was my final year. I don't remember there being a question of whether I was going back. Like it was just, yes, I'm going back. Like I wasn't in a good place, but I had, it was almost like I couldn't even, I hadn't even processed what had happened. So it was like, just keep going. And then after that year, through that year, I was not emotionally regulated. Like, and I'm sure that my teammates can like say, yeah, like I would get very angry or upset at things that were completely unrelated to my sister. Like even people being late for the ski hill, like that would really bother me. Or, you know, like classes, if I'm struggling with, like, I just didn't feel like I could manage the emotions that came with stress. Like I was emotionally resilient in that I was at school and I was having success. Like I did well skiing, but I think maybe I didn't, I wasn't processing. And then I got back home and I basically became addicted to exercise. Okay. But then after when I started processing it and I saw a therapist, that's when I feel like I was able to kind of face it in a more productive way. Yeah. So like I got through it. So looking back, yeah, I was emotionally resilient. Like I managed to go back to school and like I was on paper, had a good year. Yeah. But I wasn't in a good place. Like funny enough, I actually ran into someone last year that I knew from that year of my life skiing. And we were going up the chairlift and she was bringing things up and I didn't remember anything. Hmm. I didn't really remember like what school that she was skiing for. I didn't know like who she knew. She kept saying things. And I kept being like, well, what do you do? Yeah. And it was almost like these are things I should have known. Hmm. And it was really uncomfortable because I felt like it was like a missing part of my life. It just like you didn't have that memory, I which is not uncommon for. I like don't remember traumatic times, any of that. Yeah. And so then I, of course, listened to Mel Robbins podcast. and like, there's a, a lot of my life I don't remember. And a lot of it is around then. Like there's things I remember, but there's things I just have no memory of. Do you remember things because of stories that are told about you? Probably. Yeah, that's common. I have certain things that I remember, but it's really not. And I think I was just not in a good emotional state. Yeah. And so. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure that, like defining it and then saying if you were or you weren't is subjective and there's different definitions and different ways of looking at it. But yeah, I just I think maybe I had enough confidence I could do it. Yeah. To be emotionally resilient enough. Or maybe you had and like this is part of emotional resilience is you have an understanding of what will benefit you globally, even though that might be different than what you're feeling in a moment. Yeah. And that's the real 
kicker, I think. And that's the difference. Number one, I, I don't think it's unusual to take many years to process losses. I think anyone would tell you that. So I don't know that that's like necessarily a bad thing that you went through, but it's interesting that you were able to go back and sort of resume your life to an extent. And part of that, yeah, is understanding like, well, you know, I have to do this no matter what, like this is the course that will benefit me most in the long run. And so you just do it. You know, when people don't, they don't see that the future as something that they have control over. And again, this brings in that self-efficacy. It's like, well, I don't have control over it. So what's the point? And then they let their feelings in a moment just drive the bus. And that was, you know, Mel Robbins thing, you know, 95% of people make decisions based on what they're feeling in a moment. And that moment is probably not taking into account, well, how would this feel next week? Where is this going to get me in a year? So maybe going back to school and getting it done and then taking a year off after I graduated in hindsight was like the right call. It's yeah. Like, I don't feel like going back to school. I didn't. I had developed severe social anxiety because I got to school and no one mentioned anything. Yeah. It was really weird. And again, it's like 20 year olds. What do you expect? Yeah. But like I went back to school and I was like living this weird life of like it being normal, but also having this like trauma that I was carrying with me. Yeah. And so then, yeah, I, I mean, I did get social anxiety and then I had to work through that. But once I graduated, I pieced out of school immediately. I didn't even wait for graduation. Yep. And then I took a year off. Yep. And that's kind of like, okay, that's when I started seeing a therapist. That's when I made different friends at CrossFit, like an older group of people I felt more comfortable talking to. Yeah. And that sort of thing. So maybe you're right. Like, even though in that moment I didn't feel like going, I did know that that was what was productive and it required some resilience to get through it. Yeah. Do you know what a PID controller is? No. Okay. I wasn't expecting you to, but I did want to ask because I never like to assume that people know or don't know things. But it's a type of controller that's used in engineering systems for controlling temperature, pH, dissolve oxygen, things like that. There's one in that espresso machine right there. But essentially, it stands for proportional integral derivative controller. And it involves three sort of controls or ways of controlling the P it responds to, well, what's the value right now? So let's say temperature is trying to control for temperature. And it's like, okay, the value is 22 degrees Celsius, but I need it to be 36. So it's like, okay, I'm going to adjust and it adjusts based on the, just the difference. But the problem is it'll never actually get to that set point. There'll always be a gap. It won't overshoot. So then the I, it accounts for previous values. So I integral, it's looking at, okay, what has happened previously? And so that gets closer, but often then it will overshoot and become hyper-responsive. And then the derivative attempts to predict what's going to happen in the future. That's the global decision. So it's looking forward and saying, okay, based on where it's at, what has happened, it's going to use the algorithm to determine what might happen in the future. And that allows the controller to level out and get bang on where the set point is, like to a T if you tune it correctly. And I always think of human decision-making as a type of a PID controller because it's all the same. It's like, what am I experiencing now? What do I want to be experiencing? What have I experienced in the past that I can use to adjust? And what's going to happen in the future? And so that's the way that I think about making decisions in a moment. Because what you're experiencing is valid. What you have experienced previously is super important. Because that's that, like, that's your mind. You can use that knowledge. But there has to be some ability to look forward and say, this is what's probably going to happen in the future. So I need to make sure that my decision is going to get me there. Yeah. Or you have probabilities and then you know what decision will lead to which 
outcome. Yeah. Interestingly, I like that you brought this up in terms of like life outcomes or even emotional outcomes, because I like to think of that when someone, if I'm describing pacing to someone in a workout, you learn how to pace. People say like, I don't know how to pace. Or you get someone who's new in CrossFit or new in running where they're like, I don't know how to pace. They go too hard. Yep. But you learn that over time and you need that, like all those experiences and various workouts to figure it out. Like, this is how I feel now. This is how much work I've done. If I continue at this rate, this is how I'm going to feel in the future. Yeah. And the longer you do it, the more experience you have under your belt to make decisions on how to push and where to pull back. So all you're doing is tuning the PID controller that is pacing. Yeah. But it's now you're saying that it's something you can use for emotional like regulation, but also just like decisions with outcomes. Yeah. I mean, it's like it's kind of machine learning, but it often exists at a feedback loop. I think most people make decisions or a lot of people make decisions based on the P and the I. They forget about that D. And so they're just mm -hmm. constantly sort of overshooting their set point. They they over respond and then they under respond and then they over. So they're like crossing the set point quite often. Yeah. But they're never at a steady state and that doesn't feel good. And typically the way that PID controllers are, if you don't have that D set up properly, you might be overshooting by just a little bit at the beginning. So maybe like by a degree or two. And then that overshooting, it tends to just increase. So the error increases. So you're just overshooting by you're making these huge swings in process parameters. Like it's worse and worse and worse over time until the whole system just breaks down. What I'm imagining in my brain is like the outcomes, like you said, are very important. And I often tell my clients this, like when you're about to make a decision, consider like future Alex. Yeah. Like the outcome is like there's a delayed gratification outcome. Like, do you want to reap the benefits later of the decision you make now? Or do you want to reap the benefits right now? Yeah. And then what will that feel like in the future? And I mean, you can use nutrition as an example. Like if I make this decision right now, or even like sitting on the couch instead of going to work out, how am I going to feel in an hour if I just stay on the couch? Yeah. How am I going to feel in an hour if I get my workout in? Well, last time I got my ass off the couch, I felt amazing an hour later. Yeah. And maybe that's only one example, but we're talking about human beings who've been alive for however long. Like you're using a whole culmination. The more decisions you make, the more you have to pull from to inform your decision in a similar or even in a unique setting. Well, I think it works both ways because you're also, yeah, you have opportunity to start making different decisions, but also a lot of people are working against a very like negative pattern of decision-making that makes it feel even harder. So I was going to ask like the next part of this podcast, what some common examples of not being emotionally resilient in moments and making like emotional based decisions. Like how does that show up in people's lives day to day that might impact them? globally. You gave the example of sitting on the couch. Yeah. I feel tired. I'm going to sit on the couch. Okay. I don't feel like getting out of bed, so I won't. Okay. I don't feel like, you know, making dinner, so I'm going to eat out. Yep. I don't feel, I mean, there's so many, I mean, I feel like I could just take my whole day. Like, yeah. I don't want to sound superior here, but I rarely, rarely do what I feel like doing. Mm -hmm. I usually do the opposite. I don't feel like eating vegetables. I'm feeling stressed out. <laughs> I didn't want to eat the kale last night. Yeah. It had too much lemon juice on Sorry. it. Sorry. But I ate it anyway. Yeah. Or like, I'm feeling stressed out and tired from the week. I'm going to have a bottle of wine. Yeah. I feel like, I feel like. I feel like. And all of those decisions do, they themselves become feedback loops. So I often think about the way that alcohol specifically just creates a negative feedback loop because 
you know, you drink alcohol, you don't sleep well, you don't have a good sleep and you're a little hungover. So you skip your workout or your workout is crap. And that becomes a very negative cycle. Whereas you skip the alcohol, you get a kick-ass night of sleep. You feel like a million bucks when you wake up, you get up, you work out, feel amazing about that. Do a bunch of other good shit in your day because that's what happens when you start your day with good shit and do that enough. And all of a sudden that's the pattern. But so it's so, so hard to start that if you're essentially, you know, kicking out a leg of the stool by deciding to drink alcohol because you had a long week and not just like a glass or like a beer. I'm talking about drinking alcohol because it's what you feel like doing. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. I think when I think about this concept of delayed gratification versus instant gratification, which is kind of what you're talking about, right? Yeah. 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 Like instant gratification is doing what you feel like right now. Delayed gratification is doing what's going to make you feel good later. Yeah. But if you're always delaying gratification, do you ever reap that gratification? And I think the answer is yes. I'm a big delayed gratification. Yeah. I'm always like, yeah, I'm going to work out. I'm going to do this. What's going to make Alex feel good tomorrow morning? What's going to make Alex feel good tonight or in an hour or like after I eat the food? But I think I do reap the benefits in other ways. Like, yeah, maybe there are days where like I just succumb to the instant gratification and I stay up and I watch another hour of Netflix or whatever it may be. And I'm like in the morning, I'm like, oh, shoot, I, you know, but there are moments where I'm like, I wanted to watch that TV. I wanted that gratification in that moment. Yep. But I think you need to look at delayed gratification. You never really reap the same gratification. I mean, maybe you do like, if I work out now, I can sit on the couch later and feel better about sitting on the couch. Yeah. But you also, the delayed gratification, as Mel Robbins put it, allows for like more happiness and more opportunity. Like the delayed gratification is bigger. Yeah, and it's different. It's different and it's bigger. It's I like think when people have a broken understanding of delayed gratification, they get too simple with it. Mm -hmm. They think like, well, I'm going to follow my diet to a T and then I'm going to go eat my face off for pizza on Friday. Like that's how some people think about delayed gratification. Like, like if you that's constantly not it. delayed gratification, you don't just get to eat the pizza later. No. You get to live longer. Right. It's, that's it's, the delayed gratification. It's different. And you're just going to feel better as a human being. Yeah. It's kind of like financial planning. And like, I know we use financial examples a lot because they're so excellent for nutrition and health and all that stuff. But a person who does a good job with budgeting and saving, you know, they're not budgeting and saving so that one day they can just go spend all their money on all of the stuff that they've always wanted, but never gotten to buy. It's so that they don't have to experience financial insecurity later in life. It's so that they can enjoy taking vacations periodically without the anxiety that comes with maxing out all your credit cards to have to do it. You know, I'm not buying a brand new Range Rover so that later I can buy a Range Rover and a Lamborghini. Like, that's not it. It might present itself in other ways. Like, I'm careful with my money. So now I have money so that I can buy a business. Right. And have an opportunity for a completely different career later in life. Yeah. Like, it's bigger. The instant gratification is so small. Like, oh, you took the day off work. You know, if you keep buying into that and succumbing to instant gratification, you never get those big, yeah, like opportunities. Like it, they're big. They can be big. Small thinking versus big thinking. And there's a less. balance. Of course, like you have to be present. Right. But right. at the same time, and I don't want to redirect too much here, but like, even though you don't want to do something like right then and there, like let's take sitting on the couch versus working out. It doesn't mean that if you decide to work out, you're going to hate that hour of your life. Yep. 
you just need to start the workout. And then guess what? All of a sudden, like the workout's not so bad anymore and you might actually enjoy it. In fact, you probably will yeah. because the best way to change your outlook on a task is to begin it. I really, really sometimes don't want to do a work task, but what I do, and I learned this in undergrad, it's like, if you just start a task, the feeling towards it will be much more positive. And I've used this example before, but it's no different than CrossFit, where it's like, no one wants to do Fran. <laughs> but once that like three, two, one, go, yep. once you're doing Fran, like, yeah, it's just different. Like you, of course, want it to be over, yep. but you're motivated to do it. You're motivated to complete the task. And the closer you get, the less motivation is required. That last set of nine pull-ups, it's not so bad. Mentally, you're like, let's do this. Let's finish this, like unbroken or whatever. It's the same thing with like a work email. Like once you get started on it, it's not so bad. Yeah. Once you start a workout, it's not so bad. So it's not like delaying gratification means you're miserable while delaying the gratification. No. You can still be happy in moments. Right. But it requires action before motivation. So I think a lot of people think that motivation, willpower, strength of mind, emotional resilience are character traits that people are just, they either have or they don't. Like it exists on a spectrum and your ability to demonstrate capacity in those areas is somewhat hard-coded based on your genetics, your early life circumstances. So I was wondering if you, what you thought about that? No. No. I honestly, for me, well, lately in life, lately in life, last like 10 or 12 or 15 years, after learning that really all it takes is starting, and this isn't, it's like, it's changed a lot for me. Yeah. It's yeah. so easy to start something. It's not, but it is. Yeah. It's just, it's willing. It's like, you don't even need to will yourself. You just turn your brain off and just do it. Yeah. I mean, you hear all the time, I just need more willpower. I'm like, no, you don't. You just need more practice. You just yeah. need more practice doing. But I no, I agree. And there, anecdotally, there are just there are far too many examples in human history of people who are in either come from very poor circumstances or end up in horrible situations that demonstrate willpower. There are too many examples of that to say it's hard coded and you don't get to decide when to flex those muscles. So I think it is something that can be developed. And I think part of our issue as a society is that we don't live in a society where we really have to make hard decisions or do things that we don't want to do. You know, I think about life around the turn of the 20th century or like in the 1800s, there were things that you had to do because they were required for survival. Like in the middle of the summer, chopping wood for the fireplace in the wintertime. I bet you plenty of people didn't want to go do that, but they know what happens if they don't and it's not good. You know, making sure that food is being harvested and put away, things like that. Things that like you're making decisions that won't benefit you for months. People don't have to do that anymore. We don't have you to chop can, wood. You can coast. And some people, and I'm not saying this is a bad thing. Some people are totally content with yeah. coasting. Which is fine. You can get through life coasting. You can do a half-assed job. You can show up at work when you need to show up. You can do the bare minimum. You can, you know, eat whatever food. Like you can be content and maybe that's what makes you happy. But if you're not that person or you don't, you want more. You I think that's in the... our life. Like you actually, you have to go above and beyond. Yeah. There's nothing that you really have to do. I mean, yeah, like going to work. Some yeah. People don't even need to go to work. Well, I think that's why there's so, there's a huge industry built on like 
the people who want more out of their life in many different realms, not just health and fitness, but in you know financial and business and relationship, they want more. And they're trying to find someone to give them the answers. Just tell me how. Just tell me what the hack is. People know what to do. They do. Everybody already knows. It's the doing the that's hack hard. The is doing it. Yeah. I always think of that book, Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning. If you want to understand emotional resilience and the strength of the human will, the first half of that book is incredible. Just, you should read it. Just go read it. But as far as like building out emotional resilience and the ability to make globally beneficial decisions that you want to make, but you struggle that can be built. And like, I've believed this for a long time and I've seen it work for people, but I guess there's new sort of neuroscience data that supports this. And I heard about this. Please don't get mad at me when I say this on an Andrew Huberman podcast, because I actually, when he talks about neuroscience, I really, I enjoy that. I mean, he knows his stuff. That's his background. So he was talking about this on, don't get mad at me for this either, the David Goggins podcast, which we will discuss on a later podcast. But he's talking about this part of the brain called the anterior mid-singulate cortex. And ah, the old anterior mid-singular cortex. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's actually two of them. You have two of them in your brain, one on each side. And this came up, I, I think, in a discussion on willpower, essentially you know, David Goggins is talking some like sort of anecdotally about his experience in life. And then Huberman's like, well, funny that you mentioned that because there's data on this particular part of the brain that actually it shrinks or it gets larger in response to the way and the type of decisions that we make every day. And what they, I guess they found is that people who do hard things, and that is to say people who self-select activities that they don't want to do. It's not activities that are objectively difficult, like working out would probably not qualify for you or for me. Sometimes it might, but probably not because those are things that we want to do. So people who do things that they don't want to do regularly, that part of the brain gets bigger. And that part of the brain seems to be related to will, willpower, and globally beneficial decision-making. So the ability to emotionally self-regulate, that's that part of the brain. And you have control over it. I mean, like, you know, many parts of the brain that demonstrate neuroplasticity, which is just like the ability to grow and shrink and get bigger and get used more based on what you do in a day. That one is the same. And people who live long and healthy lives, it's really big. And people who struggle with chronic disease and sort of self-inflicted hardship, mental health problems, it's smaller, small, small, very small. So I think that's interesting because it sort of supports what I've always felt about developing emotional resilience, which is that if you self-select difficult things, you start to build emotional resilience. But the science is there. And of course, like, you know, I'm sure there will be supplements, quote unquote, that come out to help with that. But it's something that appears you have to use it kind of every day. Like it grows when you use it. And then when you don't, if you have a period of time that's easier, it gets smaller. And that probably speaks and contributes to some extent to the behavioral momentum that we all live with, which is, you know, the concept that motivation doesn't precede action. It's action that precedes motivation. And it goes both ways. Inaction precedes lack of motivation. So the more you do something, the easier that something is to do, especially if it's routinely something you don't want to do. Well, it goes action, motivation, 
action. More motivation, more, more action. Yeah. And that's why when you said you have to practice yeah. getting up off the couch. Yeah. It's the all the times that you've like just willed yourself to get up and by like just starting the action. That's will is not motivation. No. That's just like doing it. Just yeah. do it. To get the motivation because you did it and you feel good about it. Then the next time will be easier because you're like, oh yeah, last time felt really good when I did this. Yeah. That's the motivation. Yeah. And, and then you it do it and you do it enough and you're like, this is just something that I do. You don't even think about it. You kind of embrace the suck, like the shitty parts of it. And it's like baked into your day. Yeah. But it's like it's willpower is quite transient. Like as soon as you stop, it's harder to get going again. It's harder to stop back. It's like behavioral friction. It's much it's much easier to keep something moving than it is to get it moving. So that's the same thing. So as far as like having willpower or not having willpower or some people being of stronger mind and some people not. Everybody has this part in their brain. Everybody has it. You got the hardware. And when you decide to use it, that's when you develop the mind. The brain is the, you know, the hardware. The mind is the thing that we have control over and it can start to change our whole outlook. So you start to shift into someone who has that emotional resiliency and you're building it because you're doing something you hate. You don't want to do it. You don't want to get up and go run. You don't want to go outside. It's dark and cold. Oh, this sucks. And by the way, you're allowed to say that. It might actually help to say that. And then you go do it anyways. And then you start to build that emotional resilience and that negative feedback loop that you had before, which is like, I make emotional decision making that, you know, I make emotional decisions that don't benefit me globally. That makes me feel like I don't have a lot of control over my life. I don't have a lot of self-determination. I'm just, you know, a buoy in the ocean. That starts to reverse. That starts to go the other way. All of a sudden you're swimming against the current. You are the current. Yeah. You determine what the current is. Yeah. You're no longer a buoy. You're the ocean. (laughs) But that's like that change. You have to make that change and you start to develop some, okay, I have, I'm making better decisions. I understand how this works. I'm doing things I don't want to do. Like, I feel good with that. And I'm doing this enough. Like, oh, I can see this bit. I can see where this is going now. I didn't know I could do hard things. And if I can do this hard thing, maybe I can do that hard thing. Maybe I can start my own business. Maybe I can run a marathon. All of these things that probably felt off limits because you're, ah, oh, that's just not me. That'll now never be able to do that. Now everything is within your reach. Yeah. It's the right there. The self-efficacy is very high. Yeah. The belief in yourself and your preparedness and your capabilities. Yeah. Is skyrocketed. But you determine the way that feedback loop goes. You determine which way the arrow goes. Is it going in a positive direction or is it going in a negative direction? And you build that. It's something you can build. And I think, I mean, we've said it. And I think it holds true based on my experience with people. How you do one thing is how you do most things. A lot of things. Or everything. Yeah. And you can start somewhere small and then it will probably trickle into other areas of your life. That self-efficacy. Well, if I can do this workout, if I can do CrossFit, if I can do Fran, if I can do this huge ass hero workout or I can run a marathon, like, yeah, I can answer a work email. (laughs) Yeah. The magnitude of the hard thing isn't as important as you do it. Yeah. Like it doesn't need to be this like monumental heroic thing. It just needs to be a thing. Yeah. So why don't we jump into our three tools to build emotional resilience? And we've already talked about one, which is one, you do something hard for you, like hard for you, not hard for yourself. Hard, subjectively hard. Yeah. Something that you don't want to do, but you do it anyway. So if you really like working out, Working out is objectively hard, objectively hard. Like You don't get to pick that. Working out wouldn't be something that is subjectively hard for me. Mm-hmm. So maybe resting would be something that is hard for me. 
I think that would be for a lot of athletes out there. I think that, yeah, choosing to not exercise on a day. Yeah. Choosing to do something more restorative. That would be a hard thing. Yeah. Choosing to meditate. So the, yeah, the takeaway is subjectively hard for you as that person. Yeah. So do something hard every day. Yeah. Do something you don't want to do every day. Maybe that's getting up on your first alarm. Maybe it's if you are not in the habit of exercising, it's doing some form of exercise. It's going for a walk, reading a book, staying off of technology. Do something hard for you every day, every single day. I don't want to do this, but I'm going to do it anyways. Figure out what that is. Do it. Did you know, this is on topic, but somewhat random, that some of the studies have shown that the benefits of cold plunges aren't actually physical. It's mental. Yeah. And that's a great Because you're point. doing something that you don't want to do that is extremely uncomfortable and you're forcing yourself to do it. Yeah. And that mental benefit is huge, it's which ex- obviously impacts is a physical because your brain, like it impacts your brain. Yeah. It's like the impact of being cold or uncomfortable, if you have chosen and you like it, isn't as great. Exactly what you said about it has to be subjectively hard. If you like cold plunges, I hate to tell you, but cold plunges don't count. Like if you wake up every morning and you're like, "Ah, I'm looking forward to my cold plunge. If you're somebody who likes a hot shower or likes a cold plunge as much as most people like a hot shower. Well, then I think that like there's some nuance because I think that some people like the routine of the cold plunge. So even though it's difficult and it's not necessarily comfortable when you're in there, it's something that they look forward to doing. And when that happens, like when that shift occurs in your brain and it becomes something you're looking forward to, it no longer counts for this activity. Even though it can still be hard to stay in the water. Yep. Okay. Yep. So you have to pay attention to your mindset on certain things. So if that happens, like maybe it's time to move on to something that isn't the cold plunge. It doesn't necessarily need to be more painful. It just needs to be something that you don't want to do. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. Most of the data related to cold plunges is that like mechanistically, there's nothing really beneficial to a cold plunge, but psychologically, huge benefit potentially for some people, not everybody. And Huberman said that. Yeah. So a while back, I think. Yeah. On his cold plunge episode. Well, I mean, you think about it and okay, tangent, it's hard to properly assess something like cold plunging from an intervention standpoint, Mm -hmm. because People who are cold plunging know that they're cold plunging. There's no control group. You can't blind it. You can't put someone in warm water and be like, this is cold. Yeah, this is burr. <laughs> no, it doesn't work. So you can't blind it. So your subjects are aware of what they're doing and that will always impact the outcome. Mm-hmm. So, okay, number two, number two tool. When you face a difficult situation or feeling, respond, don't react. So this is kind of a concept of a like a wise mind concept and this builds what I would consider a strong mind. And it's not just semantics. Like there's an actual difference between responding to a situation and reacting to a situation. Reacting is emotional. It is momentary. It's sort of a evolved response, like a protective measure. Whereas response, that's, you know, PID takes in, like you're involving the D, you're looking forward and you're saying, ah, I had this bad experience. That sucks. I'm feeling this kind of way, which is valid. Your feelings are valid, but you don't need to let them drive the bus. So you choose to respond based on what you're feeling now, what you felt in the past, and what you know will benefit you in the future. Yeah. Sometimes when I think about responding versus reacting, I will have a feeling and that's okay. And then I can ask myself, like, what am I feeling? What do I feel like doing? What feels right? 
But then I have to ask myself, but what would be productive? Yeah. That's the wise mind. That's the response. Often what feels productive is the opposite action to what I feel like doing, which is getting mad at Meredith. Usually. Usually. (laughs) What would be productive is figuring out how to approach the situation with Meredith or letting it go. Radical or acceptance. understanding that the situation doesn't have anything at all to do with Meredith yeah. and therefore getting <laughs> mad at Meredith is actually illogical. Yeah. Or, you know, maybe it means just going to the store and buying new mitts because Meredith lost mine. Oh, you want to you want to go there? No, I don't want to rehash that. OK, we'll save but that. Yeah, one. that's the thing is like you just what is productive? That's the wise mind in my mind. Yeah. And then sometimes it requires opposite action. Yeah. And a most, lot of this is opposite action, actually, which we talked about several podcasts ago. Yeah. Often my hack for shifting from a reaction to a response for many people in in many situations, especially situations regarding emotional eating, is to build in some time in between this thing happened. I'm having these feelings. I'm going to wait for 10 minutes before I do anything. Build in time. And then you naturally kind of come down away from that emotional threshold back into you know, prefrontal cortex part of your brain and you can make a better decision if you make a decision at all, but build in time for that to happen. I find time for me has never worked because I tend to ruminate or spiral. So that may not be the best. Sometimes distraction is a good idea, like listening to music or going to do a workout or doing something that is distracting or physical. Going for a walk, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. But you have to sometimes find the right tool for you. Right. Third and final tool for this be consistent with your approach and routine. And I will say, in addition to that, do your hard stuff early in the day if you can and protect your time for doing these kinds of things. Because I think what happens a lot, okay, I have this hard thing that I know I should do. I don't want to do it. All of a sudden, it gets a lot easier to interrupt. Oh, this thing popped up that I have to go deal with. Oh, so-and-so wants to schedule a meeting. We know you have to protect the part of your schedule that allows you to do that and understand like the natural tendency for a lot of people is going to be to not do that. It's going to be to allow interferences to occur. So understand that will be your tendency too at first and you have to prevent that from happening. Yeah. And that's like, I mean, building a routine or having a schedule is very helpful. Yeah. Just what you do. You're on autopilot eventually. Yeah. You take the decision part out of it. Yeah. Yeah especially when it's something new or something you don't really want to do. You're like, well, it's 8 a.m. And at 8 a.m. I do this. Yeah. And then it's done and I move on with my day. And by doing that hard thing first, you'll be amazed at what happens to your brain the rest of the day. Just going to throw that out there. It's good. Spoiler alert. There was one time I was doing a CrossFit workout. It was an open workout. I think it was like 21, 18, 15, something. Or it might have been like 21, 15, nine of rowing cows and thrusters. Does that ring a bell? That's the, yeah, that was the 2015 or 2014, 2016 and 2014. It was a repeat. Okay. I remember asking my friend, Mitch, who was in law school with me and also was CrossFitting. So we would go to the gym together. He's a great athlete. I remember saying to him, okay, what do I, do I break? And he was basically, he said to me like, no. Yeah. And I was like, but what if I have to? He's like, Alex, like, there's no option to break. That is not an option. The only option is to go unbroken. And it was like this thing in my head switch, which it was like, oh, it's that simple. Yeah. You just do it. <laughs> like you can do it. Somebody believes you. you believe you can do it. You just do it. Like there's not even an option not to. Yeah. Like for me, there's no option to skip a run. 
just because it's cold outside or because it's whatever. It was something that simple where it was like, if you're capable of doing something, that is the only option to do it. Yeah. And like, I know that might sound like aggressive, but it's kind of what I live by. It was like, just don't allow that other option to even be on the table. Yeah. Figure it out. A person I knew in high school who ended up being a very elite runner once said to never quit a race. You never quit unless you're, I mean, if you're injured or like you're, you know, risking harm, then definitely quit. Yeah. But if you're just in a lot of pain, don't quit. Because as soon as you quit once, quitting forever becomes an option. Yeah. It's forever an option. And that like, that goes for intense training. Like as soon as you give yourself the option to back off when you're only doing that to keep yourself comfortable, that is now an option for you. My dad once said like, once you walk once, and this, sometimes you build in walking in runs like marathons, but if you're not, once you walk the first time, it's much easier to continue to take walking breaks. Yeah. Often when I'm doing workouts, like this morning, for instance, I was doing 1K repeats and there's many moments where I'm like, I could stop. Like, why not just take a break halfway through this one? And it wasn't, it was like, I want to, but I don't have to. Yeah. I can do this. It's just going to be hard and that's okay. Sometimes just like embracing that something sucks or is going to be hard, like you said. Yeah. That's autonomy. You have a decision and you're choosing the decision. You didn't have to stop running. Well, that's like... The you didn't have to not go to work. You didn't have to stay up late. Yeah. You chose that decision. You're not a victim of circumstance. I sometimes get that from clients. Like, well, this, well, that, well, this. Well, I'm like, oh, I want to say, and I've talked about this in other podcasts. Well, this person who's this also, but they did that. Yeah, they share your circumstances and have a lot of things in common with you, but they are reacting in literally the opposite way. Like, I don't even know. Some people don't even know the other option that they can do. It exists. Yeah. But and it does. It you are empowered to make a different decision. Be a huge violation of our privacy policy. I would oh, definitely yes. I, share. And, and also it would be rude. Oh, I know. I know. I mean, the, I, but I wish that I... Way. You say, well, how can we make this easier? Uh, yeah, or, no, I, I just sometimes wish that like you could share something <laughs> like that. Even yeah. though there's a lot of reasons why you can't. But one of the reasons why I, I like endurance training, and even when I was doing CrossFit and you were probably the same way, I thrived in longer, harder workouts. Like the longer the workout, typically the better I would do. There comes a moment in endurance training, proper endurance training, and definitely in competition, like in races, in really hard, really long workouts, where the decision to continue at the pace that you're moving, it becomes a choice. You like spend all this time building this fire and then you have to choose to stand in it. And I think a lot of people, they don't have that mental toughness. And it's like a lot of people just don't like endurance training. They don't like that. And that's fine. It doesn't mean that you have to do it. But one of the reasons I like it is it because it's, it creates that really unique scenario for me, like physically and emotionally, where you're just like, this sucks. This is awful. I want to quit. This is one of the most painful things that I've ever done. And then you keep going. And it's one of the only ways that I have found to create that type of pain and then deal with it. Mm -hmm. You know, and the pain is like, it's uniquely yours. It's such a psychotic You've thing. You've chosen but, to put, that's when someone's like, you're tough. I'm like, I'm not actually that no. tough. But it's like the pain, like I get there, I'm like, I created this. It's like my baby. It's like, I made this, it's mine. Why would I let this go? You haven't come this far to only come this far. Yeah, but it's not even that. There's a bit of like, you've earned this. You can't let up now. 
but it's also there's like a possessive sort of like I don't know it's like it's actually very hard to explain when you're really in it and it's really bad but you're like this is mine only I can create this for myself yeah I I think I get it like I was gonna say when someone says like you're really tough okay I'm gonna interrupt you one more time okay maybe I'll get to it you will but here's the visual if you're a Harry Potter person at the end of the oh, movie, at like on the last when they're at uh, King's Cross Landing, Dumbledore's there, but he's dead. And there's the baby Voldemort who's like, just kind of like, eh. that's the visual. That's mine. I made that. OK, it's just dark and it's gross and it's yucky, but it's mine. OK, OK, go. When someone says you're really tough, I actually I'm not. I'm tough when I've chosen to make something feel painful. Yeah. When I have created the pain from like exertion, I can be tough. I can live with that. I'm choosing. When I am faced with pain that isn't my choosing, I am a huge baby. Like being at all cold. Cold, sick. Like when my wisdom teeth got taken out. Like I just don't like that type of pain. I don't do well with it. When you crashed your bike this summer. Yeah. Like, I'm just not tough with that kind of pain. It's not self-inflicted. So it's like, huh. it's not in a workout. It's like, I'm injured. I hate that. Yeah. Fair. And I, I wonder if it's, there's a lack of control there. Probably. Yeah. I think maybe it's that I can make pain in a workout stop immediately. If you wanted to. And you know that. Yeah. If I stop riding this bike or if I stop running, I will feel so much better immediately. Whereas like, I can't make this pain in my leg go away because I smashed it biking. And you're like, it's actually probably going to be worse tomorrow. And if we know one thing about myself, it's that I like control. Yeah. I mean. Ah, it's an interesting talk. All these are such interesting topics. But yeah, I think the takeaway is that like you are empowered. You're capable. It's just making that decision. You empower yourself. Yes. Yeah. Like That's I said it. the other day, no one's going to do it for you. No one's coming. You can go to every single Tony Robbins conference that ever is. Tony Robbins can't do it for you. No, no one's going to get me out of bed. No. And to circle back on that, I get myself out of bed. It's just really hard. Yeah. It's just really hard. But I still get up early every single day. Maybe not on my first alarm, but just as early as I need to. Yep. Get my work done. Well, Alex, thank you for this riveting conversation. It was very engaging. Yeah, I thought it was good. We hope you liked it and took something from it. If this resonates with you, share it with a friend, share it on Instagram, let us know. We always appreciate hearing positive feedback from the podcast and like, subscribe, leave us a review if you don't mind. Those really matter. And thank you for listening. Thank you for following along and we'll catch you on the next one.